Ultimately, all authority comes from God and everyone is accountable to God. Jesus is the king of the universe, regardless of human opinion about him. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Hello, students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 19, John chapter 19, as you know, we've been in the study in the Gospel of John for several months now. Today we're in John 19, it's Friday morning, and it's only a couple of hours from the cross, somewhere close to midnight on Thursday, uh, Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we looked at last week, he's in, been interrogated by Annas, the former high priest. Caiaphas, the current high priest, who's Annas' son-in-law, and finally he's been tried by the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish Supreme Court and the highest legislative body in all of Israel, and that's all happened on Thursday before daylight. All three trials took place at night, which of course are illegal according to Jewish law. The Sanhedrin sentenced Jesus to death because he claimed uh, to be God. He claimed to be the Son of God. However, the Sanhedrin has a problem. They want to execute Jesus, but they don't have the power to do that. Rome had removed the right to uh, uh, implement capital punishment from uh, Israel in 6 AD when Caponius became their first governor. So now they have to take Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor, in order to get a death penalty case. Now, the Jewish leaders present Jesus to Pilate as a political threat to Rome. So they really want to make Pilate believe that Jesus is a political threat and therefore is worthy of execution. So Pilate interviews Jesus. We looked at this last week. And after Jesus says, look, my kingdom is not of this world. I don't have an army. My servants aren't fighting. Uh, I'm not a threat to Rome. Pilate goes out and declares to the Jews that Jesus is not guilty. The Jews, however, Jewish religious leaders, we're talking about the chief priests and uh, the Pharisees on the Sanhedrin, they are determined that Jesus must die. So as a gesture of goodwill, it was an annual event, on the Passover, the Roman governor would release a prisoner that was held by Rome to the um, Jewish crowds who got to choose which prisoner they wanted to be released. So they could choose, we want this prisoner released, and they demanded Barabbas, who happened to be an insurrectionist. He was very popular with the people because the people hated Rome. So an insurrectionist against Rome, the people said, this is our guy. So release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. So Pilate's trying not to execute an innocent uh, man, in this case Jesus. So now he's going to try another tactic to avoid executing Jesus who is innocent. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 1 of chapter 19. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Verse 2, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him, and they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Here's the principle. 
Jesus chose to endure unparalleled suffering and humiliation because he loves sinners. Jesus chose to endure unparalleled suffering and humiliation because he loves sinners. I'm going to give you a word picture here, and you might want to put your seatbelts on. This is hard to listen to, and it's extraordinarily hard if you were to see it. The word scourged means whipped or flogged. The Roman whip, which I chose not to show you a picture of because I, I don't want to literally make you ill, it was, a, it was a short chunk of wood with several leather thongs attached to it, and attached to the ends of the thongs were jagged pieces of metal and sharp sheep bones. And typically, they would have two Roman soldiers called lictors, and they would take turns whipping the victim, one on each side, with diagonal stripes across the back. Now, the Romans had three forms of scourging depending on the level of your wrongdoing. The first form was fustigatio, and the fustigatio was the mildest form of beating, if you will. It was relatively minor infractions, hooliganism, troublemaking, etc., and they usually would whip you and give you a severe warning. The second level of scourging was flagatio, and it was a more brutal form, longer and it typically was uh, imposed for more um, serious crimes. That was the flagiatio. And the verberatio was reserved for capital crimes. This scourging only took place if you were already sentenced to death, and it was always associated with crucifixions. If they did that third most brutal form of beating, they would strip the victim, they would tie your hands over your head on a post to a post so that the back was exposed, and the skin and the muscles were taut so they could rip easier. And then they would take turns, one Roman on one side, one Roman soldier, and they would whip you to the point where your muscles were ripped and torn open, and many, many times your internal organs, entrails, and bones were exposed. So it was brutal. Uh, and there was no 39 stripes. The 39 stripes business was Jewish beatings. The Romans would beat you until they got tired. Uh, or until the commander called them off. Now, in a capital crime, this form of beating, verberatio, was used to dehumanize the victim and, more strategically, to weaken the victim and hasten their death, usually due to massive blood loss. Uh, many victims did not survive the beating, let alone the crucifixion. See, the problem for Rome was a crucifixion which was invented by the Persians, perfected by the Romans, required in some cases days for the victim to die, usually of asphyxiation or dehydration, one of the two, and it might be days. So if they gave you a severe beating and bled you out, it sped up your death. Uh, Jesus himself predicted this, by the way, in Isaiah 50, verse 6. He is speaking and he says, prophetically, I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Interesting sidebar, it's, it, there's a speculation by some historians that the reason why Cleopas and his wife could not recognize Jesus on the road to Emmaus, remember they didn't recognize him, is because they had pulled his beard out, which is massive disfiguration and enormous pain. So What's paradoxical here is Pilate orders Jesus to be scourged. He's hoping to spare his life, which is incomprehensible to you and me. 
what he's hoping is that if he punishes Jesus with a scourging, it will satisfy the Jewish religious bloodlust and result in sympathy for Jesus. Someone had noted, quote, Jesus was not scourged in order to be crucified, but in order to escape crucifixion. We know that because Luke 23, 20 tells us that Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. He's talking about the Jewish religious leaders and the crowd they've gathered. But they kept calling out, saying, crucify, crucify him. And he, Pilate, said to them the third time, why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will what? Punish him and release him. The punishment was going to be the scourging. Now, this scourging took place before Pilate had sentenced Jesus to death. We know that because Pilate says, my intention is to scourge him, satisfy your desire to punish him, and then I'm going to release him because there's no crime in him worthy of death. Now, we know the scourging was brutal because it tells us that Jesus was unable to carry the cross, about a 75 to 100 pound cross beam, to Golgotha. So they had, a, they had to impress Simon of Cyrene. Remember, you know the story. He happened to be a passerby and have him carry the cross because Jesus had so much blood loss, he was unable to carry it up to Golgotha. A soldier's life, we're seeing John present the soldier's interaction with Jesus. It is not a pretty picture. A soldier's life in Rome was pretty boring, especially in the barracks. I mean, if you've been in the military, it's usually boring until you're in battle and then it's terrifying. So you got a lot of boredom and a few minutes of terror you think you're going to die at that point. So soldiers in the barracks, whenever they were assigned a prisoner, in this case Jesus, they would often take out their boredom and their aggression on the prisoner. And the Gospel of John tells us that they played a cruel game with Jesus. Since Jesus is accused of being the king of the Jews, the soldiers acted this out in a very crude stage play. They put a crown of thorns on his head, a purple robe around his shoulders, and Luke tells us they gave him a reed in his hand as a scepter. I'm sorry, Matthew 27 tells us that. And this crown of thorns was probably made from the date palm. Uh, the date palm has, if you've seen orange trees with spikes, well, the date palm has spikes 12 inches long. So if you have a crown of thorns, a woven crown of thorns on your head with spikes like that, and they jam it down on your head, I don't know if you ever had a flesh wound, a head wound, it bleeds an enormous amount because you have so much blood flow around your head. So when they jammed that crown of thorns on his head, and a parody of a real king, he obviously bled freely. Thorns were a result of the curse of Adam and Eve's sin, and they were also an emblem of sin. Genesis 3, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam and Eve, and your sin. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. What's utterly interesting is the amount of time I spend on two acres just dealing with weeds. And Adam and Eve, prior to the curse, had no weeds. No herbicides, no pesticides, no hoes, no... I mean, must have been a marvelous, marvelous thing at that point. So Jesus now, paradoxically, is paying the penalty for the curse by being punished with a crown of thorns that Adam and Eve's sin brought to planet Earth in the first place. 
And the cloak that they wrapped around Jesus' soldier shoulders is kind of a mock royal robe. It was just a military robe. It was common, kept you warm in the winter. It says it's purple. Actually, back in the era, they didn't have words for all the colors. It was probably red, and it was probably worn because they had used it in battle and in barracks life. So they put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a robe around him, pretending he was a king, and then they blindfolded him. And as they lined up to pay him homage, they would line up in a, in a line coming to him and they would say, Hail, King of the Jews, mocking him. They would drop on one knee in front of him and then they'd get up and punch him in the face. Now, when you're blindfolded, you can't prepare for being struck. I mean, if you see a blow coming, you can do something. If you're blindfolded, you just live with, uh, with a strike in the face and you can't prep for it. Matthew tells us they spit on him. And then they took the reed, the staff, and they smacked him on top of the head with the crown of thorns with this reed, which the blood flow would be just copious. And then they said mockingly, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, they were making fun of him, but they were speaking more truth than they knew. In fact, Jesus is not only King of the Jews, he is the King and Lord of the universe. And one day... Every soul, including these soldiers, will stand before him in judgment. Verse 4. Pilate came out again and said to them, this is the Jewish religious leaders, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Here's our principle. Jesus alone is perfectly innocent because he alone is the Son of God. Jesus alone is perfectly innocent because he alone is the Son of God. So Jesus is scourged, and the soldiers are beating him and poking fun of him and mocking him. Pilate goes outside the praetorium. Jesus is on the inside, goes outside and talks to the crowd, and he says, I find no guilt in Jesus. He declares him innocent now multiple times. And then Pilate brings Jesus outside the praetorium, that's the headquarters of Pilate, to the waiting Jewish leaders and the growing crowd, and they see Jesus coming out, beaten, number one, bloody, enormously bloody. He's been scourged. He's obviously harmless. He's obviously pathetic. He's certainly not a believable threat to Rome. Pilate is letting the Jews see that Jesus, in fact, is not a political threat to Rome and therefore not deserving of death by the hand of Rome. And then he says, behold the man. This is the famous Latin, ecce homo. You've probably heard of that before. Jesus is bruised, beaten, swollen, bleeding from the crown of thorns. He's dressed in this ridiculous robe made up by the soldiers to look like a joke. All of this was predicted in Isaiah. Isaiah 52, verse 14, quote, So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. So we're talking about the substitutionary death of the most innocent man who ever lived for you and me. Died on our behalf and was suffered enormously prior to the crucifixion on our behalf. So Pilate now has two motives. By the way, John, alone of the gospel writers, writes of the conversation that Pilate has with Jesus. We talked a little bit about that last week. There's a possibility that John actually got into the praetorium and was an eyewitness of that. We don't have historical evidence of that, but clearly somebody was an eyewitness and told John because John's recording this conversation as it takes place. So Pilate's trying to free Jesus because he knows he's innocent, but he's also using Jesus to mock the Jewish authorities who he despises. He basically says, look, it's obvious that Jesus is harmless and helpless. Look at him. He can barely walk. He was beat almost to death. It's ridiculous for you to say that this pathetic figure is a threat to Rome. How can you claim I should execute him for political crimes against Rome when he can barely walk? So Pilate's attempt to secure Jesus' freedom by scourging has failed. The Jewish leaders hate Jesus and they resent being poked fun of. So they scream and they prompt the crowd to scream, crucify, crucify. The bloodlust of the crowd at this point in time is almost like a set of wolves who are consumed with a kill. Pilate is so disgusted, he says, take him yourself and crucify him. You do the dirty deed yourself. He's basically saying, look, you brought this man for me to try. I have tried him. I've declared him innocent. You reject my judgment, you deal with it. Now, this is the third time that Pilate, the judge, declares Jesus not guilty. If you were a judge and you declared three times from the bench that the defendant in front of you was not guilty, what would be the logical next step? Dismiss the case, free the prisoner, and the trial is over. That would be justice. If you declared that the, after investigation and the trial that the defendant is innocent, you should dismiss the case. That would have been the just thing to do. But Pilate wants to calm the Jews, the Jewish leaders, and he also has some other motivations which we're going to discuss. So initially, the Jewish leaders charged Jesus with insurrection, rebellion against Rome, and failure to pay taxes. Now, we know that Pilate's disproved that. So now they reveal their true motives. They want to kill Jesus not for political reasons. They don't want to kill him for religious reasons. They say Jesus is a blasphemer. He claimed to be the son of God, even though he's just a man. And, of course, that was a capital crime according to Jewish law. We know that. Leviticus 24 tells us, Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death, all the congregation shall surely stone him. Now, Pilate's not going to execute Jesus according to Roman law because he hasn't violated any Roman law. So the Sanhedrin want Jesus executed according to Jewish law. Pilate, the Roman governor, is not willing to exercise legal jurisdiction over Jewish law. He's not a Jewish individual. He's a Roman governor. And he says, that's your problem. You're going to have to take care of it. The Jewish leaders have a problem because they can't execute Jesus. They don't have the right to do it. They want Pilate to do it for them. 
when Pilate hears them describe Jesus as the Son of God, he panics. He becomes frightened. Verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid and entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Here's the principle. God does not reveal new truth to us if we refuse to obey the truth we have already been given. God does not reveal new truth to us if we refuse to obey the truth we've already been given. Many, many people pray, Lord, show me what the next step is. And God says, I already told you what the next step was, but you're disobedient. You're now willing to do the next step. I'm not going to tell you what step number two is because you refused to obey step number one. So if you're not getting answers to prayer, that's always a useful question to say, Lord, is there anything in my life I am currently not obeying that I know I should do? Believe me, the Holy Spirit will turn the spotlight on and show you what that is. Pilate is not willing to obey everybody he already knows, and so God, Jesus, is not going to tell him anything else. Now, the Romans were highly superstitious. And, and we kind of laugh at that, but today we have the same thing. Even today, when people make a statement about the future, they knock on wood. They say, knock on wood, right? They believe it's going to protect them from being jinxed. The old Celtics believed that the, the trees would that the gods lived in the trees. So you knocked on the trees to rouse them up and send them off, you know, so they wouldn't jinx your future. You know, you hear about black cats walking under ladders, Friday the 13th. Those are all superstitions. They're not related to reality or reason, but nonetheless, they exert some control over some people's life. Most superstitions contain an element of dread and fear. Now, the Romans had a superstition. They believed that the gods, or the children of the gods, would sometimes show up in human form. So you were talking to a person, and they might be God or a God in human form. They would look at some cases of mental illness and say, ah, that person's touched, right? I mean, that, that, that might be divinity. We're not sure how that works at that point in time. So Pilate had just had Jesus beaten. Now he's getting pretty nervous because... If Jesus is God in human form, he's in deep doo-doo, right? Jesus might want to exert retribution on him. Compounding his fear is at this ex exact moment, he's just gotten a message from his wife, Matthew 27, 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message, probably by way of a soldier, saying, quote, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Now, Pilate is really spooked. He's already superstitious that he might be dealing with the Son of God, whatever that means. And now his wife had a dream about a person who they're calling the Son of God. Most of the ancient world put a great deal of weight on dreams. Dreams had meaning. Dreams had purpose. Dreams might be omens of the future. So his wife says, don't anything to do with that man. He's righteous, and you just beat him. Now, she didn't know that, but he's thinking this at this point in time. Now, if that were so, not only is he beating the Son of God, but maybe the gods were communicating with Pilate's wife about this prisoner called Jesus. So Pilate's getting pretty nervous, so he goes back inside the palace and he asks Jesus point blank, where are you from? 
right? Jesus has already told him what? My kingdom is not of this world, not of this realm. So if Jesus is not of this world, where are you from, E.T.? Right? Are you an extraterrestrial? Are you from the realm of the gods? I mean, Pilate wants to know that. Jesus has remained silent. Not just in front of Pilate, but earlier, Matthew tells us uh, he had maintained silence in the face of the multiple accusations of the Jewish leaders, all of which was prophesied, Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. Matthew 27, 14 tells us that Jesus' silence left Pilate amazed. And amazed here means shaken. It means astonished. It means shook up, literally, overcome with awe. So Pilate is amazed at Jesus' silence. He's also irritated that Jesus won't respond to him, because after all, he is the governor, right? Jesus doesn't give Pilate any new information because Pilate hadn't responded to the truth he already had. Earlier, Pilate has said, what is truth? Turns around, walks away. Pretty clear he didn't want to hear what Jesus said truth was because he turned on his heel and walked out. Pilate is more interested in his political career than he is interested in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our world is filled with pilots. Filled. They're interested, kind of, sort of, in what Jesus says, but they really don't know what, know what he says because they've got other priorities. The things of this world are more important than finding out what Jesus said. And that's true of even Christians. It's much easier to turn the television on or turn your screen on and do something than it is to turn the screen off, actually open this book up, actually say, Holy Spirit, teach my thick mind what you want me to learn and have a meeting with God. Now, if they made a movie about having a meeting with God, we'd probably go, whoa, 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 yeah, that's pretty cool. Let me tell you, do the homework. Open the book up, ask the Holy Spirit to open your mind, connect the synapses, overcome the dementia and the age and all the other stuff that's the human condition, and he will do it. He is very, very, very faithful. You must obey the truth God's already given you before he's going to give you any more. Verse 10, so Pilate said to Jesus, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Here's the principle. Ultimately, all authority comes from God and everyone is accountable to God. Ultimately, all authority comes from God and everyone is accountable to God. In the Greek, Pilate literally says to Jesus, to me, you do not speak? You can't believe it. And he tries to impress Jesus with his authority. He's talking to God. He's trying to impress God with his authority. He says, you know, I can kill you, and I can release you. You better speak to me. I have power. I am 
the governor, right? And Jesus tells him, you have no intrinsic authority at all. All your authority is delegated from God in heaven. Now, Pilate didn't know that. Pilate thought his only authority was Tiberius Caesar. The truth is, Pilate was given life by God. Pilate gave Pilate, I mean, God gave Pilate his authority of governor. And amazingly, God arranged a divine appointment between Pilate and his son. This is a divine appointment. Pilate has an opportunity to be face-to-face with Jesus. What would you do if you were face-to-face with Jesus? Hopefully you would not do what he did. Right? Pilate says, I've got the freedom, the authority to release you or to kill you. He doesn't realize that the very freedom to choose to release Jesus or kill him comes from God. So God's sovereign control over all things takes into account human free will, even evil human free will. Jesus already knows that Pilate is going to cave into the crowds. Here he knows that. It's been prophesied. He already knows that he's going to sentence him to death. That is a sin. Pilate is definitely guilty of a sin, but Jesus says it's a lesser sin than the sin of the one who delivered Jesus over to Pilate in the first place. Interesting question. Who would that be? been a lot of commentaries written about that. Some people try and make a case for Judas for the betrayer, but he didn't deliver him up. Likely, Jesus is referring to the high priest Caiaphas. It was God who put Caiaphas in the position of high priest. Now, as the high priest, Caiaphas was entrusted to know and obey all the Old Testament scriptures and lead Israel as the high priest to obey them as well. Caiaphas knew the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, And yet, he chose to organize the people and organize the Sanhedrin to reject their Messiah. The mastermind behind Jesus' arrest, trial, and deliverance was Caiaphas. Now, God also chose Pilate as governor, but Pilate was given political responsibility over his sphere of influence. Caiaphas was given religious responsibility over his sphere of influence. And because Pilate had less revelation than Caiaphas, God says, through Jesus, the sin of Pilate is less than the sin of Caiaphas. The sin of Caiaphas is more because he has more knowledge. He has more light, which probably should sober us up and terrify us because we have been given a great deal of light. We have God himself living in us, teaching us if we're willing to learn what he wants us to know. So our excuse is zero. Now, we're not told what efforts Pilate made to release Jesus, but it says that he made efforts to release Jesus. What we're only told is what the Jews' response is. What we're not told is what we talked about last week. Pilate is on thin ice with his boss, Tiberius Caesar. His position as governor is pretty shaky. We already talked about this. He's already screwed up three major times in the last five years. He was only governor for 10 years. It's now about 30 AD. He was appointed at the beginning of 26. So he's screwed up three times big time, and he's been reprimanded by Tiberius prior to this because he's overridden Jewish religious law because he's an egomaniac. Tiberius Caesar did not even live in Rome. He was a recluse. He lived on the island of Capri, and he was paranoid, and he was also brutal. 
he had no problem executing people who didn't agree with him. You think Saddam Hussein was nuts? This guy would execute you for breathing wrong. He had a very bad history of doing that. And Pilate, who's already made three major blunders, is terrified that if he makes one more screw-up and it gets reported to Tiberius, he's going to lose his job and he might lose his head. So the Jewish religious leaders tell Pilate, if you release Jesus, we're going to bring an accusation against you to Caesar. We're going to tell him that you released a known threat to Rome. Now this was their trump card. And it worked. Anyone who claimed to be a king was an enemy of the emperor because the emperor was the, treated as God. So the Jews claim, Pilate, if you let Jesus go, you're releasing an enemy of Caesar, you're releasing an insurrectionist. Forget the fact that Jesus already made it clear, my kingdom's not of this world, I'm not a threat to Rome. Pilate knew Jesus wasn't a threat to Rome. But Pilate is double-minded. Actually, he's triple-minded. He's messed Stop. He wants justice for Jesus, who is innocent, and he wants to avoid conflict with the Jewish leaders because if he screws up one more time, they're going to report him because he's already done it, and above all else, he wants to keep his job as governor. So he's got three goals that contradict each other. Because Pilate cared more about his relationship with Caesar, and he cared more about his relationship with God, he decided to go along with the crowd. Luke 23, 21 tells us, but they, the crowd, kept calling out, crucify, crucify him. And Pilate said to them for the third time, why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death, therefore I will punish him and release him. How did they respond to this? Verse 23, but they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified, underline this sentence, and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that the demand be granted. Here's the principle. If you're not controlled by God-given convictions, you will be controlled by the crowd's opinions. If you're not controlled by God-given convictions, you will be controlled by the crowd's opinions. Now, the crowds that lined the streets on Sunday... Five days ago, during Jesus' triumphal entry, were largely from Galilee. They had come down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jesus' hometown was in Nazareth, which was in Galilee. Jesus had spent 18 months ministering in Galilee around the Sea of, sea of Galilee, that region. And the Galileans that were visiting Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, they knew Jesus. And that was the crowd that was shouting what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Those were the crowd from Galilee. This crowd at Pilate's Hall, who were screaming crucify him, it was not that crowd. It was a different crowd. This crowd was from Judea and Jerusalem. This crowd was following the Jewish religious leaders who were leading them into this rebellion, the Sanhedrin. Their reaction the rejection of their Messiah was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 53.3. He was despised, talking about the Messiah, and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, 
He was despised and we did not esteem him. Um, there was a movie made by Mel Gibson. What was it called? The Passion? I could not watch that. I did not see that. Um, my understanding is, from people who went to it, it was extraordinarily difficult to see. Extraordinarily difficult to watch. Isaiah 53 says his suffering would be so hor horrific that it would be something that we would find it very difficult to even look at. This crowd is being prompted by the 70 members of the Sanhedrin to demand Jesus' crucifixion. Now, if you don't have godly convictions about right or wrong, it is terribly easy to go along to get along, right? Pilate's primary loyalty was to his own career. And so he, with knowledge, knowingly violated justice and commanded that the most perfect person who ever lived be subjected to the cruelest death ever invented. Crucifixion was not, it was common, but it was not for respectable people. It was a shameful death. It was a painful death. You're usually crucified naked. It was reserved for the worst criminals, for slaves, and especially for revolutionaries. Rome would crucify revolutionaries, insurrectionists, people who opposed the, uh, the rule of Rome in a heartbeat. And there were thousands and thousands and thousands of crucifixions of Jews in the land by Rome. Matthew 27 tells us, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, quote, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Luke 19.14 records that they had said, we do not want this man to reign over us. They're talking about their Messiah. The reality is every single person will make a decision to accept Christ as Lord or reject him as Lord. He will either be king of your life or you will be in rebellion against him, but there's no neutrality. And the, that consequences of that choice will last for all eternity. Pilate is clearly feeling guilty. He's got to wash his hands, right? He's trying to be clean. He's feeling guilty because he is guilty. And he tries to wash away his guilt by washing his hands. He's claiming to be innocent of Jesus' wrongful death, but he is the one who has just pronounced the death penalty upon an innocent man. He tried to pin all the guilt on the Jewish religious leaders in the crowd. And they do demand their share of guilt. They were the ones who brought Jesus, the Sanhedrin was. They were the ones who demanded that Jesus be wrongly executed. But Pilate went along with it, knowing that Jesus was innocent and declaring he was innocent, and yet ordered him to be scourged against the law and murdered against the law. What is terrifying to me, is that the Jewish religious leader says the chief priests, they accept the responsibility for murdering the Son of God. They say, his blood shall be on us and our children. Now, in the Old Testament, blood guiltiness typically involved guilt that was incurred when innocent blood was shed. So if, there, if you found a body in the field, right, 
and it was not known how this body died, if they were murdered or who killed them, that corpse was defiling the land because they were killed in violence. In other words, it was murder, it was a sin, it was wrong. And there was an elaborate set of sacrifices that they were required to do to cleanse the land from this blood guiltiness. Obviously, God takes uh, murder very seriously. He said to Cain, when Cain had killed his brother Abel, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground because he was murdered at that point in time. So the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, specifically the 70, and the crowd they incited stated that they and their children would bear the penalty themselves for taking this innocent life. I understand if they want to take the responsibility themselves, but for them to be willing to condemn their children to live with the consequences of this decision is, um, I don't have any words for it at that point in time. Now, history demonstrates that, in fact, for 2,000 years, the Jewish people have been persistently persecuted to the point of death. And I'm not saying it's all because of that. We know that Satan has had a vendetta against the Jewish people since Abraham. As soon as Satan found out that Abraham was the seed and the Messiah was coming from his family, there has been spiritual war against the Jewish people for almost 4,000 years. So what's going on in the Middle East at this point in time is not new. It is a continuation of a 4,000-year, ultimately a spiritual conflict in the heavenly places between Satan and demons who hate Israel because they were the birth source of the Messiah, which will crush his head. So behind the physical warfare, there is a great deal of spiritual warfare and we cannot be naive to that. That's why ultimately the only solution for human conflict is the Prince of Peace, and that's why we need to be praying and praying and praying that God will impose His will on human beings. Verse 13. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was there preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he handed him over to them to be crucified. Here's the principle. Jesus is the king of the universe, regardless of human opinion about him. Jesus is the king of the universe, regardless of human opinion about him. Now, this word judgment seat in the Greek is bema seat. It's a place where Pilate would sit on his throne to render, render binding judicial decisions. So it was a, an official place. The pavement or Gabbatha, it literally means a stone pavement or a mosaic pavement. It was located just outside Pilate's judgment hall called the Praetorium. Have you ever been inside the Fort Antonia? If you've been to Israel, you will see that. And you will, find, you will see the actual place where they believe that Pilate rendered a judicial sentence of death on Christ. So the day of preparation, John uses this term, the day of preparation, he gives you a time frame. It was Friday of Passover week. We're Friday morning now, probably 6, 7, 8 o'clock. Mark 15 tells us that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. Now, 
The Jewish time measurement began at sunrise. The first hour was sunrise, normally 6 o'clock-ish, depending on the seasons. So the third hour would be about 9 o'clock. So Mark records that Jesus was crucified about 9 a.m. The Romans, however, measured time beginning at midnight. Midnight was zero hour. John records that this trial hasn't finished yet, and it's the sixth hour, so it's somewhere after 6 o'clock in the morning, according to John. And you say, well, how come they don't agree? Well, no one had a Rolex back then. So times obviously were somewhat approximate. You made, you made times by the, by the daylight at that point. Now, Pilate says, look at your king. Jesus doesn't look like a king. Pilate doesn't believe Jesus is a king, but he's trying to get the Jews to drop their charges against him. However, the apostle John does believe and does present Jesus Christ as king. The king of glory who went to the cross in order to save the human race from their sin. And the Jewish religious leaders respond to Pilate's effort to deliver Jesus with a great shout, away with him, away with him, crucify, crucify. Pilate tries one last time and he says, shall I crucify your king? In other words, how is it possible that you want to kill your own king? How is that possible? And then the chief priests show their true colors. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. They claim to be God's priests, those who intercede between God and people. In reality, they have rejected their God who brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. They rejected their God who led them through the wilderness. They rejected their God who brought them into the land that he had promised them. And it's not the first time that's happened. Israel's leaders came to Samuel, a prophet, and they said, we want you to appoint a human king over us so that we can be like all the nations. Samuel cries out to God about this. He's heartbroken. He can't believe it. God says to him in 1 Samuel 8, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And before we jump on our high horse and say, I can't believe that any people would do that. We have 8 billion people on planet Earth, the majority of which have said, we will not have this God reign over us. We want a human king so that we can be like everybody else. God was the perfect king, the perfect father, and they chose, and humans choose, earthly kings who by definition are fallible, selfish, and sinful. God loved the United Nations, but it's filled with broken, sinful, selfish people. The notion that you're going to get just and loving and fatherly and benevolent rule from another group of human beings? Get over it. It ain't going to happen. I'm not critiquing human institutions. I'm saying they're populated by sinful people, so you're going to get sinful behavior. In front of Pilate, this group rejected the Messiah that God had promised to them and authenticated before them with many, many miracles. They say, we have no king but Caesar. We reject Yahweh, who's got a 2,000-year history with us, actually 4,000, and we're going to submit ourselves to Tiberius Caesar, an evil king. Paul tells us why they did that. Romans 10.3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. 
Now, Israel was willfully ignorant and stubbornly ignorant, and every single sinner on planet Earth is also willfully ignorant. Israel was proud and independent and refused to submit to God's righteousness in Christ, and every single sinner on planet Earth is exactly that way. Instead of believing that the law of Moses led them to Christ, Israel worshipped their law and rejected their Savior. They arrogantly believed that their law-keeping righteousness was superior to God's righteousness, and throughout history, every single person who rejects Jesus does so on the same basis. Every person who rejects Jesus believes that their own righteousness is superior to whatever God's standard is. You talk to people and say, what does it take to get into heaven? Well, I don't know, but I'm better than so-and-so, so God's got to let me in the door. My righteousness is superior to whatever standard's got. Whatever standard he has, I'm better than that standard. He's got to let me in. That is arrogance, beyond arrogance. So it's terribly easy to thrash the Jews until you're honest and look in the mirror and you go, no, that is me. I resemble that. That is the truth of all sinful creatures, Jew or Gentile. So in all four Gospels, after examining the evidence, Pilate declares seven times that Jesus is without guilt. And yet he gives the order to execute the only perfectly innocent man who ever lived. And this was perversion of justice on a cosmic scale. God establishes rulers to punish evil and to promote righteousness. But Pilate feared Caesar more than he feared God. He loved his own career more than justice. And he didn't punish evil, he did evil. It was a tremendous miscarriage of justice. And yet, and yet, the sovereign purposes of God work through the sinful plans of man. That's not bad. I might say that again. The sovereign purposes of God work through the sinful plans of man to accomplish God's ultimate good. And God's ultimate good is to redeem a people for himself who will spend eternity praising the glory of his grace because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Luke captures this extremely well in Acts 4.27. The apostles are preaching and they're being persecuted by the Sanhedrin. They're being threatened. They're being beaten. This is after Christ rose from the dead. The Holy Spirit's already come. And they are praying to God after the persecution. They're saying, quote, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now, the cross was necessary because every human being is sinful, Jew and Gentile. From a human standpoint, the trial and death of Jesus Christ was the greatest miscarriage of justice in all of history because there's only one perfectly innocent person. From the divine standpoint, the trial and execution of Jesus fulfilled prophecy, and it accomplished the will of God using the evil opposition of human beings to accomplish it. You and I look in our world today, and sometimes we see evil on a scale that is unbelievable. If you want to get my righteous rage inflated, talk to me about children that are abused, taken advantage of, murdered, sold into sex, etc. 
But that, that, and if you think we're outraged over evil, understand how God feels about it, far more than we do. And yet, by faith, God has said, I will take even the evil of humanity and I will accomplish my eternally perfect purposes through that because I am a loving Heavenly Father. And I prove that love, God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? So if you wonder whether God is holding out on you, don't wonder. He's already demonstrated he's given you everything. He's given you his son. So whatever is going on in your life at this point in time, you have a loving, heavenly, sovereign father who is working all things together for good through that. Let's summarize, and then Tom will come and do prayer and praise. Point one, Jesus chose to endure unparalleled suffering and humiliation because he loves sinners. Number two, Jesus alone is perfectly innocent because he alone is the Son of God. There's only been one perfectly innocent human being in all of history. Number three, God does not reveal new truth to us if we refuse to obey the truth we already have been given. So ask the Lord to show you so you can obey it. Number four, Ultimately, all authority comes from God, and everyone is accountable to God. I'm not saying you're not accountable to the people God's putting authority over your life, but ultimately your accountability is to God, and so is theirs. Number five, if you're not controlled by God-given convictions, you will be controlled by the crowd's opinions. If you're spending more time listening to the crowd's opinions on social media or electronic media or whatever it happens to be, understand that the world's opinion always contradicts the will of God. There is warfare here. Spend more time listening to God so you know what your God-given convictions are. If you spend 90% of your time listening to the world, you're going to be controlled by them. Control what goes into your mind. And lastly, Jesus is the king of the universe, regardless of human opinion about him. He is Lord, and we are going to see more of that as we go through. Thank you for your attention and your awareness. Next week, read ahead. Uh, We'll probably spend a couple more weeks in John 19. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.